welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Andrew Seeley. He's president of the Migration Policy Institute and former executive vice president of the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He has authored a new book called Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. It's the counterargument to the immigration narrative of President Trump and the White House. Andrew, your book just came out. Uh, just this week, uh, Vanishing Frontiers, the Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Now, that seems to be a contrary title to the news that we get almost every single day. So talk about that. Yeah, it it is. You know, it really is a, uh, you know, a contrary title. And the, the basic argument is that, you know, the U.S. and Mexico are getting closer, whether politicians like it or not. I mean, we're getting closer in, in terms of our economic interdependence, in terms of, of culture, in terms of engagement in the border. And the border is no longer just cities that are next to each other, but goes as far north as Phoenix or Dallas or Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, it's a big part of their their our interconnections in the film industry and in the innovation, technology innovation industries. And, you know, this is just Mexico is part of our lives in the United States. And I think part of the pushback we're seeing in the U.S. on this um, in the political world is is because Mexico is such an intimate part of our lives. I mean, it's, it's part of the, the cultural and demographic changes in the U.S. are, are about Mexico. Part of the, the changing economics, most of which I, I would argue has been good for, for the country, but which does have some some downsides for, for individual people. I mean, you can say something's a net good, but at the same time, none of us live in the net good. You know, so the things that are good for a right. country as a whole aren't always good for every American. You know, uh, those things are deep within our American society, those changes that aren't just about Mexico, but where Mexico is is really deep in terms of how America fits in the global economy. Mexico is a huge piece of this. And, and so the political pushback is a result of how deep these changes are and how deep our, our, our connections are to Mexico these days. It's no longer a distant country. It's a country that is, is intimately you know, entangled in our everyday lives. If you look at our northern border with Canada, obviously uh, they speak English and, and French, uh, so the language is common. But it seems like what your thesis is, is that Mexico's becoming more like our northern border with Canada. Very much so. I mean, Mexico is not yet there, and it's part of what makes it interesting but also complicated is is that Mexico is different from us and and will continue to be different from us for a very long time. It's still a less developed country than than the U.S. or Canada. Uh, It's still a country that is is building its government, building a stronger state, trying to get rid of corruption. But there, in fact, have been huge leaps and bounds in Mexico in the past 20 years around all of these things in terms of the economy much more similar to ours, growing a middle class that's, that's pretty robust, beginning to develop a real pushback on corruption and the beginnings of strong institutions for rule of law. Still a long way to go. 
Um, but but there's a lot of commonalities that weren't there 20 or 30 years ago, be- becoming obviously a robust democracy in Mexico as, as in the United States with all the good and bad that produces. Right. People don't always like the outcomes of democracy, but 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 really a robust democracy where people can make decisions and throw out the, the, the parties they don't like and elect people they want. Um, you know, these are these are similarities we have and that this wasn't true 20 or 30 years ago. And so Mexico is headed the direction of Canada. It'll be, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, very much like Canada, probably. But we're still in the throes of that transition where we're different enough that 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 getting closer is complicated, but that we can tell we're headed that direction. And it, language separates us uh, as well. And and uh, United States just has some difficulty with becoming bilingual, doesn't it? Yeah, we do. And, you know, I don't think the U.S. is going to become bilingual. I, I, I think we're a big enough country, you know, as much as is, I think being bilingual is a good thing. And, you know, it's an advantage for people to speak two or three or four languages. I, I You know, English will always dominate in this country. And, and in fact, there's a tendency over time, you know, as we have less immigration from Mexico and Latin America, because it's dropped in, in recent years, in the last 10 years, 12 years, it's dropped a lot, actually. And so... We're going to have more second, third, fourth, fifth generation people from Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America who don't speak Spanish or who have very rudimentary understanding of Spanish, actually. You know, are familiar with phrases that they've heard of, you know, well, once in a while speak with a grandparent in a little bit of Spanish. But it's not a it's not a language they're fluent in. So English will dominate in, in the U.S. and Spanish will continue to dominate in Mexico. But um, it's never stopped us from being close to Germany. It's never stopped us from being close to to the, the French-speaking part of Canada, and, and and that will be a barrier we can overcome. The harder barriers will be, you know, figuring out the, the economic differences and, and and the fact that we still are, you know, Mexico is no longer maybe a developing country, but it's an emerging economy, and, and the U.S. really is a developed economy, and that's, that's going to be the tough divide to bridge. I want to talk about trade. I want to talk about immigration, but let's try to separate them out. Uh, we're hearing talk from the president about NAFTA, has to be renegotiated. Uh, perhaps uh, the United States will withdraw from it. Uh, there seems to be a big bubble of confusion over NAFTA for the average American. Can you sort that out for us a bit and what it means in relationship to Mexico and the United States? Yeah, you know, we, we talk about NAFTA as though it's a trade agreement because technically it is. Um, I mean, it is the North American Free Trade Agreement. But the the reality is that we do more than just trade with Mexico and with Canada for that matter. I mean, we, we have a much deeper kind of economic relationship. It's unlike what we have with any other country in the world. Um, we have ended up manufacturing things together. About half of the trade with Mexico, um, and it's comparable with Canada. I don't know the exact figure with Canada, but it's comparable. Are, are th- you know, it's not actual trade. It is things that we are building together. So these are car parts moving back and forth across the border as we're building a car or airplane parts as we're building an airplane or, you know, component parts of a refrigerator. So we build a lot of things together where there's part of the manufacturing operation on each side of the border. And, and then the other half is is actual trade. So Mexico is, is one of our biggest markets for agricultural goods, for example, for soybeans and corn and pork and, and to some extent beef and a few other, few other uh, crops. Um, and a few other meats. Um, and uh, the U.S. is a big market for some Mexican goods, including some agricultural products for winter vegetables and some fruits, avocados, of course. So, you know, in, in some ways, it's become the proxy for our trade debate. 
But the irony is that, that Mexico and Canada and NAFTA in general is not like the rest of our trading relationships. It's actually a very different trading relationship. We ended up creating, and this was the idea, this was President Bush's idea, that we ended up creating a trading block that was essentially about competing together against the rest of the world. So the Mexican and Canadian economies are integrated with our own in ways that we don't we don't see. And so tearing that apart is actually painful to, to ourselves. You know, I mean, this is actually trying to undo the nature of our own economy. But, you know, President Trump was elected with a... a you know, promised that he was going to take on NAFTA and other trade agreements um, with the, you know, uh, strong support of people who are worried about the changing U.S. economy and the fact that jobs have gone overseas. Um, there's a lot of studies that tell us that, that where jobs have gone overseas, they've gone to to Asia, not to not to Mexico. Mexico, some jobs have gone to Mexico, but a lot more have been created because of our integration with Mexico. Um, but that said, you know, NAFTA becomes a useful proxy for the conversation about trade, even though we know that in fact it's a different kind of agreement than we have with other uh, with other countries around the world, and and I think it may actually be um, headed to extinction these days. I mean, right now the NAFTA talks have broken down, and uh, I think there's a good chance that the agreement is going to fall apart, and that the U.S. may withdraw at some point. I don't think it's predetermined, but it is it's likely to happen, and we're likely to see a government elected in Mexico that's very skeptical of NAFTA as well. Um, not against it, but skeptical of it. And I think there's a good chance that we may start to undo some of the things that made our, our own economy competitive over the past 20 years. Well, not only do we have the NAFTA issue, but now we had have the tariff issue. Yes. Uh, and I think people have difficulty separating those two out as two distinct different things. Can Can you help us with that? Sure. Um, I mean, we have put tariffs right now on um, on steel and, and aluminum, um, including steel and aluminum from Mexico. There's an irony here that, that and Canada as well. Mexico is actually a, a, a net importer of uh, steel from the U.S., not the other way around. Th- that's what two, I thought. But yeah, no, it's a it's a strange. Mexicans are scratching their heads on this one because they they actually buy a lot more steel than um, than than they sell to us, but. Uh, but they decided not to slap tariffs on U.S. steel because it would hurt their own industries. Um, and, and actually, I think the tariffs on Mexican steel are going to hurt our own industries. One of, one of the, the great stories in the, in the book, actually, Vanishing Frontiers, is about the largest nail factory in the United States, which is in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And it was bought by a Mexican steel company. Um, and it has since expanded and hired more workers and done well, precisely because they were able to integrate the nail production in Missouri with steel production in northern Mexico. And they were able to compete against mostly Chinese imports. Uh, China has subsidized steel and and was, you know, slowly the, the, the imports from China and from a few other countries that are mostly supported by Chinese steel were, were beginning, mostly Chinese-owned companies, were beginning to displace American nails. And, and here this company, Midcontinent Nails, rises out of the ashes in part because it integrates with Mexico. And so this is one of the companies that's going to be hit by, by the tariffs. And, and um, you know, every time we do something to raise tariff barriers, you know, and if we pull out of NAFTA, we'll do a lot of this. We're going to end up actually hitting our own industrial production in the United States because our industrial production is now so integrated with Mexico and Canada that that what you do is you tear apart production chains that are ours, and and it's not hitting, you know, it's not just hitting your neighbor, but you know what you, you you're throwing a bomb at the neighbor and it's ricocheting off and hitting your own house. The whole aspect of of trade, though, and and the tariffs and and all of this uh, seems to be rhetorically um, uh, 
good for the base, I guess, is a, a way to put it for for the uh, Trump administration base. But but it actually seems counterproductive if one looks at it economically or even as a matter of foreign policy. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of things we're doing on trade as well on immigration, which I know we'll get to, are are things that they sound really good, but when you look at the effects, are are you know they're going to come back to haunt us not not down the road, but in, in very quickly. Um, I mean, this is true. Obviously, if we if we start to have NAFTA, it's going to hit American farmers first because they are the ones that that and a few machine manufacturers um, in the U.S. also Mexicans buy a lot of of machine goods um, for factories in Mexico. So those will be the first folks that get hit. But then, you know, you're going to see the auto industry, for example. And I mean, not only the price of a car go up, but but you're likely to see a lot of auto companies think about moving production elsewhere in the world. One of the, the great secrets of the auto industry is, you know, those of us old enough to remember this, you know, the the 80s and 90s, we, we had lots of hand-wringing about whether, you know, foreign cars were going to displace American right. cars. Right. Right. It was the whole import, you know, Japan, but also, you know, Germany and Korea and elsewhere. And, and the reality is what ended up happening as we integrated our industry with Mexico and Canada and, and our cars became a, bit more, became a bit more efficient as well, is we ended up seeing foreign car manufacturers bring their production to North America and mostly to the United States. Um, but it became very efficient to make cars, making a lot of the components in Mexico, most of the assemblies still in the U.S. And so most of foreign car manufacturers now make their cars in North America. And, and the biggest imprint is of American workers and then second Mexican workers, third Canadians. And we're likely to see that change over time. Not immediately, but, but you know, the next decade would probably see a bit of movement towards some of those companies realizing they're, they're better off manufacturing and then just exporting to the United States as they used to do. And that, and that would be a shame. Well, let's move to immigration, and uh, let's set the stage just a bit. Uh, contrary to perhaps popular belief, uh, immigration between Mexico and the United States is down, correct? That's right. I mean, it, it's at the lowest level since 19, depending whose numbers you believe, 1969 or 1971. So almost 50 years, over 45 years, and... Uh, Mexicans stopped after the 2007-2008 recession. Uh, Mexicans stopped coming to the U.S. in lo- large numbers, and we thought that it would pick up again once the economy picked up in the U.S., but it didn't. Mexicans have mostly decided to stay in Mexico. You do have a little bit of a, you know, you have a few people trying to jump across the border here and there. It hasn't gone away completely, but it's the, you know, the lowest numbers in, in more than four, almost five decades. And, and that's fascinating, actually. I mean, that, that should be a change in the relationship. Except that now we have a flow of Central Americans coming. Across I, the I was going to say the, the, what gets conflated, I believe, is that Mexico uh, has become a portal for immigration from Central and South America. And That's it's, right. It's not necessarily Mexican uh, people uh, emigrating or I- even trying to illegally immigrate. It's other people from other uh, areas for all kinds of economic and political reasons. That's right. I mean, you know, the number of Mexicans in the United States illegally dropped by about a million over the past decade, uh, according to the Pew Research Center. And and the Mexican community itself, the number of Mexican-born people in the U.S. has been stable. Surpri- there's a lot of Mexicans that come through legal visas, the legal system, but there's others going back all the time. A lot of Mexicans have returned to Mexico to, to pursue opportunities there. And so the folks that are coming now are from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Those are the largest numbers. 
Um, the majority of people who try to cross, even though these are very small countries and they're far, you have to cross through Mexico to get to the to the United States. That the majority of people that have been trying to cross the border illegally um, are are actually Central Americans these days, and and this gets into a different set of issues because we can't actually figure out how to how to stem that flow without working with the Mexicans, and, and that's where I say it would be you know. It, the, the price of getting on Mexico's bad side on this is that Mexico loses any incentive whatsoever to to work with the United States to try and stem the tide of Central American immigration. And, and so some of us are scratching our heads every time we see the U.S. government go after the Mexican government on this because they've been, you know, detaining and deporting about half the people, a little less than half of the Central American flows, the Central Americans who are trying to get to the, to the U.S. border. Um, and that's very controversial in Mexico um, because Mexicans are sympathetic. These are uh, not totally, but these are the caravans that we hear yep. talking about of uh, hundreds of people traveling across Me- Mexico from whatever their home of origin is to uh, try to get into the United States either legally through asylum or illegally through other means. Is that is that a correct that definition? Correct. And, and, and you see it actually with the caravan that was so tweeted about and so, you know, followed in the media. You know, it started off with about 1,500 people, give or take, you know, in the south of Mexico. By the time it got to the border, there were 200 to 300 people who tried to apply for asylum in the U.S. That's still a large number, but it was, you know, it's a fraction of 1,500. Most of those people stayed in Mexico, returned to Central America. Mexico has, has upped its game on, on asylum because some of these people do have legitimate claims of fleeing violence. Some of these, the, the three countries, two of them have the highest homicide rates in the world, Guatemala, um, El Salvador and Honduras. And Guatemala has a lower homicide rate, but it has some places that are very violent. And so some people do have legitimate asylum claims. And Mexico was able to give some people, allow them to apply for asylum in Mexico Others were given temporary uh, permits to stay. Some were probably deported. We don't actually know. Um, but, you know, Mexico actually took care of, of the largest flow that our president was worried about. Uh, what happens if Mexico decides it's not going to cooperate in any way? I, I think that may actually be counterproductive to, to what we want to, what, what the positions that have been coming out of the White House have been in terms of how to, to reduce the flows of people coming illegally across the border and try and get to more of a legal flow in the future. And certainly better to have Mexican uh, government uh, working in tandem with the United States on those issues. Very much so. And, and certainly, I mean, I, you know, I would say the Mexican government could do a lot better and get its asylum system in order. They've, they've, they've improved it a lot. It's, it's starting to work um, in, in effective ways. Um, you know, you don't want to just be deporting people because some of them really do have legitimate claims, but but not all of them do. And, you know, unfortunately, there have to be distinctions between people who have who are fleeing violence and those that don't that really are irregular migrants and, and you can't accommodate everyone. So, you know, it's in our interest to work with Mexico on, on figuring out what those distinctions are and what's the best way of making sure that large numbers of people don't start the journey across Mexico in the first place. And, and Mexico has done a lot of messaging with the U.S., in Central America as well about, you know, encouraging people not to take the journey to, to you know, educate about the fact that they can be caught and, and, and deported. And so, you know, it it's surely behooves us to do that. And it certainly behooves us to try and work with the countries in Central America, along with Mexico, to invest in rule of law, to try and reduce violence and to invest in, in economic development so people aren't leaving. So, you know, the Central American countries end up looking a lot more like Mexico, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, where, where people 
you know, may not feel they have all the opportunities in the world, but they have enough opportunities that they're not ready to leave their country. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Andrew, you are always our reality check, and we hear all kinds of different stories about children being taken away from parents who are trying to get into the country and and can't, and these children being lost in the American system. Break that down for us in, yeah. in realistic, true terms. Well, the, the children that were lost were not really lost. Let's, let's start there. The children that were lost were, you know, Health and Human Services placed them with a close family member or someone known to them who right. had been vetted. And it, once they do that, it, that, you know, they are, are not responsible for following up with them. They did a study to check and see if they could find out where they were. It was not a very sophisticated study. They made one or two phone calls. And they couldn't find all of them, and that became a story of missing children. But they're not missing. They're with families that were vetted and and usually have very close ties to the children. Um, and they did not make extensive efforts to try and go out and find them. And, you know, the sense is once they're placed, that's good to they know. can. So that's good, right? That's the right. good side of that's this. That's good to know. The bad side, and the, and the side that I think worries most Americans is, you know, increasingly we have a policy of separating children from parents who are crossing the border and prosecuting people who are crossing for the first time. And and there are two problems with this. I mean, one is is a, you know, capacity issue, which is do you want your US attorney's offices and your court systems filled with first-time border crossers? You know, it doesn't seem to have discouraged people yet. There are other ways of actually discouraging people that that do not involve going after them the first time. Usually what you want to do in law enforcement is try and match penalties to the severity of of the crime, a first-time border crosser is not as, you know, we, we used to prosecute second-time border crossers and then smugglers right. very heavily. Right. So, you know, you try and match the penalties to to the severity of the crime. And, and a first-time border crossing, we did not deal with it as a criminal offense. That's starting to change, and that, that really is gumming up the U.S. Attorney's offices in the Southwest and the court system, which redirects them away from other kinds of violent crime, um, as well as white-collar crime. The, the second thing that I think has really got more of a resonance with the, the American public is, you know, the, the policy, having now a stated policy that we're going to separate parents and children. And 
as, as much as you know, many of us may agree that that we do need border enforcement. I mean, you know, it's not a a you know, we we can't take everyone that comes across the border. We should be generous to those who are fleeing persecution and who you know merit asylum, but we can't take everyone. The notion of separating parents and children really goes against the grain with how we've dealt with families in this country in a wide range of 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 spheres. You know, we've tried to keep families together. We've always looked after the best interests of kids, no matter what their parents have done. You know, and the system, whatever systems we right. have have been set up to make sure that the children's welfare comes first. And this is really a radical deport, departure uh, in the past few weeks of, of trying to separate kids from their parents. And I, I think that's going to get some pushback. If you look at some of the public opinion polls, uh, that's already getting some pushback. Uh, it is. And, and, uh, regardless how people feel about immigration or illegal immigration, uh, this sort of trumps that. It and no no pun intended, but I no mean, pun intended. Yeah, yeah, but but it does. I mean, people are saying uh, we don't want to do that. Yeah, it, I mean, we've always had the notion that in the end, you don't penalize children for things that their parents do, right? I mean, in the end, you don't want to do anything to children that is going to harm their development, their growth, their chance to grow into full fledged, well adjusted adults over time, right? I mean, we, so you always put the welfare of children first when you're designing policies. And, and obviously, sometimes you do have to separate children for parents if parents go to jail, but but you try and minimize the damage wherever you can. That's always a priority. This, this we seem to have gone the other direction. And, and, and the irony here is we don't need to do it. I mean, there are other things we could be doing that would discourage people from crossing. Um, and so this is not necessarily... Um, it, it may work. I mean, it certainly may work because it's such a blunt instrument. But there may be other things we've done. There was actually in place from the Obama administration and under the Trump administration a consequence delivery system where, you know, you scale up penalties. You know, if people try and cross more than once, then then there's a more severe penalty. It was actually fairly effective, actually. They, they started to – we've seen border numbers dropping. We did see an increase in the past three months in the United States um, of people trying to cross the border illegally. But three months is a short time period, and, right. and I think our president has reacted quickly to this and worried about it. But but three months really is a short period. O- seen in the long term, the number of people crossing the border has dropped year by year by year by year for a very long time, at least since uh, 2007. And so we seem to be on a path towards fewer people crossing. We need to make some more investments in border enforcement. I actually am not an open borders person. I think we, we do actually have to have some control of our border. But it's not a crisis. It's something we can do gradually and we can continue the virtuous cycle of, of discouraging people from crossing illegally and, and getting them to go through legal channels. We were talking about uh, minor children predominantly in, in the first part of my question. The second part is let's go to the other end and talk about the dreamers who you and I have talked about before. But oh, yeah. Uh, they're still in limbo. There are a couple of court decisions, lower court decisions that have protected them. But it, it's still there in Congress as a political pawn and right now going nowhere. That's right. And and uh, we were with some Canadian colleagues recently. And, you know, one of the things they told us is, uh, hey, if any dreamers want to apply to uh, come to Canada, someone, someone had asked a Canadian colleague, you know, can they apply for asylum? And, and the response was, um, they don't need to apply for asylum. They can, they can apply for, I mean, they probably don't qualify either, but they, they can, you know, they can, uh, you know, these are people we'd want to take. They, these are people who, who for the most part have good skills. They speak English. They've grown up in the American educational system. 
you know, we've got, you know, work-based visas that would be very applicable to, to, to the dreamers. And so others may start competing for the talent that we've grown in this country if we're not careful. I, I, I think the, the dreamers are stuck in limbo. It's unfortunate these are kids who have spent almost their entire life in the United States. Um, I keep in touch with uh, a few people who are dreamers, but one in particular, I remember who, who left Mexico when he was a year old, has never, you know, has never really been to Mexico, has no memory of it. It's not their home. Photos. <laughs> it's not their home. I mean, right. loves Mexican food and, you know, speaks Spanish with his parents and, you know, knows a lot, knows a bit about Mexican music, but is as American as can be, you know, I mean, in every other way. And, you know, all the dreamers I know are, are as American as can be as, as much as any other American kid that's grown up here. And, you know, I think there's enormous sympathy about, among both Republicans and Democrats towards the Dreamers. I mean, we've seen it in public opinion polls. More than 80% of the American public um, wants to do something to bring them, to give them permanent legal status in the United States. But it's caught in politics. And, you know, the politics of immigration is toxic. I, I think if we tried to do a narrow agreement around around the Dreamers, giving the Dreamers a legal path to, to stay in this country permanently and then give... President Trump, what he wants in terms of a border wall, you could get this through Congress, but it's not sure, clear that we're ever going to get a vote on that measure. And it, it unfortunately may take things falling apart in the courts uh, before Congress gets its act together and begins to, to vote on bills again. One of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is is rhetoric. And I know as an academic and and a policy uh, advocate and and an author, uh, you look at words very carefully. Uh, we see a lot of verbiage out of this administration that some people would call racist. Uh, certainly, uh, painting broad brush, uh, uh, word, or using words to paint broad brush. brush negativity about uh, certain certain groups. Uh, but let me ask in particular, uh, whenever we hear of immigration from Central South America and Mexico, the president brings up MS-13, uh, a gang that's here in the United States. Now, it, it is a very violent gang, and I'm not debating that whatsoever. They do heinous things. They do indeed. But it's such a small percentage. But to hear the rhetoric, it sounds like it's about every other immigrant who comes to this country. That that conflation seems to stir this racist pot, in in my view, as a layperson. Give, yeah. give me your studied view of that, please. Well, you know, I... I it's, it's unfortunate because we should be able to have a rational conversation about how we, you know, we strengthen our legal immigration system and, and we control our borders. I mean, that's not, those are not inconsistent propositions. Um, we want immigration that helps us. And at the same time, we want people to come through legal ways. Um, and, and instead, we've ended up in a conversation that is, you know, about demonizing immigrants um, or thinking that immigrants are the solution to everything. I mean, and, and neither of those is true. Immigrants are, are people. Um, the... The reality is we know immigrants are much, much less likely to commit a crime than native-born Americans, um, much lower. There's a number of studies on this, uh, much lower um, uh, criminal uh, propensities. Now, it changes for the second generation, but that's, you know, the second generation becomes like all other Americans. Um, but immigrants tend to commit much, many fewer crimes. That is true also of Mexican immigrants. There have been studies of that and Latin American immigrants. 
Um, so it's not just that the Chinese don't or the Mexicans do. It turns out all immigrants from different backgrounds are, are very unlikely to commit crimes. Um, we also know that immigrants are much more likely to start businesses, actually twice as likely as a native-born American to start a business. Um, some of that because they are just naturally entrepreneurial. You tend to get the best and the brightest and the most motivated who come from their countries. And, and best and brightest is not always the most educated, but but it is the people who really have a desire to do something new and different and exciting and move their life ahead and, and, and make the world a better place for their children. So a lot of it is that. And then some of it is lack of other opportunities. I was talking to someone actually from, from Kenya the other day whose husband was incredibly well-educated um, in Kenya, but could not find a way into his profession in in the Midwest in the United States. And so he started a, a African restaurant. You know, and, and so it suddenly became a restaurateur because that was his pathway to the middle class in the United States. He's a legal immigrant in the U.S. But, you know, he would never get his studies validated to to be what he was in his homeland. And so there's some of that, too, that why people start businesses is it's where they can, can be successful. But we see an incredible entrepreneurial energy from immigrants. And this is true also of Mexican immigrants, by the way. It's not just... You know, this is not just Chinese and Indian, right. you know, uh, tech graduates. Mexican immigrants with lower skills also tend to start businesses at a much higher rate than native-born Americans. And yet we've come down with this image of the immigrant as, or at least a debate in one part of the country, with immigrants being tied to crime. And it's exactly the opposite. Immigrants are tied to entrepreneurship and they're tied to low crime. Um, now, does that mean we shouldn't have a debate about MS-13? Sure, we should have a debate about any violent criminal group whether the members are immigrants or native-born. And there's a lot of you know, a lot of gangs that have native-born members. Um, we should have a debate about how we deal with crime, but that should be a crime debate, not an immigration debate. We hear the president still talking about the wall. Uh, for um, people who don't know, we have about 600 miles worth of wall already. Uh, this still appears, though, to me, Andrew, to be a, a symbolic gesture. Uh, it, 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 it comes to reality when you deal with the Congress, but it, it does seem to be a symbolic gesture. I, I think it is. I think the wall has never been about immigration from Mexico specifically. It's a wall about dealing with our own fears about demographic change and our own fears about globalization and trying to keep them both at bay. It's a, it's a powerful symbol of both. Um, there are places on the border where you could make an argument that some sort of barrier is needed to, to slow um, to, to slow irregular immigration flows. Um, but most places, when you when you talk to people who know the border well, they'll tell you that most places we don't have a wall. There's a reason. We have a river. We have other sorts of barriers. We have mountains. Um, you know, and there's other sorts of investments in technology and, and manpower that would be more useful than building a wall. So even people that, that are strong supporters of greater border enforcement will tell you there are other ways to go about this than building a physical barrier in most places. There may be a few places where it's useful. Um, but I think the wall has become a, a powerful symbol, and it's a symbol, you know, a, about our fears. And, and I actually tell people, you know, though this book is about the relationship between the United States and Mexico, the, the book is in some ways, you know, our relationship with Mexico is in some ways... A, a symbolic relationship about some of the hopes and fears we have for our own country. Right. You know, when we talk about Mexico, we're talking about we talk Mexican immigrants. We're really talking about whether we feel good about immigration and we feel it's sort of part of our DNA as a country and part of our moving forward and part of our diversity that makes us strong, or it's part of our fear of, of changing demographics and becoming less white country, perhaps, or or becoming a country that is is very different and very diverse in ways that, that people aren't comfortable with. 
when we talk about NAFTA, we're not just talking about trade with Mexico. We're talking about our insertion in the global economy and perhaps in the world in general, wanting to hold that world at bay. And so I think some of the things that we talk about as, as a bilateral relationship, it's about us. And the wall, I think, is about us in the end. I mean, it's less about the Mexicans uh, because we would do other things. If the idea was, was how do we actually slow immigration flows, we need to coordinate with the Mexicans about the Central American flows. We need to, to, to do some investments in, in manpower and in technology at the border, but not so much of a wall. So it's not really about that as much as it is about ourselves. You know, and and to hear you talk and to read your book and 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 think about these issues, it, it, there seem to be rational solutions to all of the issues that that are raised. But instead, Congress is not doing anything, and there's no indication that they're going to do anything. It's just a non-starter. The whole issue of immigration. I think that's right, and and I think we may have to look beyond beyond the national level to see what's happening. And I and I think particularly with Mexico and, and even on immigration, some of the issue, some of the ways that states and localities are dealing with things may actually be be more creative. And we have to look there for inspiration and hope some of that leadership trickles up instead of trickling down from Washington. What, one of my favorite stories in the book actually is about a uh, it's about San Diego and Tijuana becoming a single metropolitan area. Right. And and I lived in this region when I was in the in my 20s in the 1990s. Um, and it was these were very distant cities and and you've ended up today with two cities that are incredibly interrelated that sit down and do planning together with government leaders meet all the time, city leaders and and state leaders for that matter meet all the time to to plan economic development. And sort of the ultimate symbol was they you know San Diego had been looking for an airport for years because they needed to be able to, to have planes that could fly, particularly to Asia, and they couldn't do that out of the downtown airport in San Diego. And they finally realized that their best option is to build a bridge to the Tijuana airport, which is right on the border uh, with the United States. And so they work out a deal with the Tijuana government and with a private company. They eventually get a private company to build this that, that builds a bridge across the, the border fence and allows people to check into their flights, because Tijuana already had flights to Asia. And they had flights to South America and they had flights to Europe. And, you know, so there was a major international airport right there. And so they built this bridge. You can check in in the United States in English, walk across the bridge. You quickly go through immigration and customs. They make it very fast. And then you hop on your flight. You go to your gate and hop on your flight almost as though you're in the United States. So there was this ingenious solution. And, and so this bridge has become, for people in San Diego and Tijuana, has become the symbol of the two cities becoming a single region. You know, we're a single metro region just divided by by geography, by, by international borderline. And the great thing about this is San Diego is a really conservative city. It's a it's mostly had Republican mayors. Um, the current mayor is, is Republican. The the long serving mayor now heads the the Chamber of Commerce is Republican. This was not out of you know this was not a political question. This was a pragmatic question of how you solve a problem and how two economies had actually become pretty linked. And so it made sense to work together. And and I think you see this a lot in the border region. You see this a lot on immigration in, in a lot of states where people are just not waiting for the federal government to act. They're doing their own thing with Mexico and they're doing their own thing on immigration to try and make, to try and solve real everyday problems. And this is true probably beyond this, right? I mean, a lot of our national politics is broken, but at a local level, there's some really good stuff happening in our country. Well, Andrew, your book is fascinating, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. 
It's uh, a counter narrative. Uh, I don't think it was intended to be, but it ended up being a counter narrative. I know you researched this many years uh, before we've got to the point that we are now, uh, but uh, it, it's well written. It's understandable. If uh, you think that uh, you want to know more, it's certainly a place to go. It's well done, Andrew. Tom, thank you. I really appreciate it. And it was a lot of fun to write, I have to say. I mean, I've worked on these issues for years, but well, what I did was go back and find stories. I was you know, trying to tell the stories about right. the connections between the two. And, and it, so it's filled with people's stories that I discovered along the way. And it, it was just it was a lot of fun to write. And I hope it's fun to read for others. So well, thanks a lot, Tom. B- best of luck with it. And we'll talk to you on our next issue of Immigration when it comes up. Thanks so much. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Andrew Seeley, author of the new book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR podcast directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, you can direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Thank you.